Thanks, Brent, and thanks, family. Uh, there's a lot in that passage, yeah? That's a big one, um, and we're going to do it. There's a lot of important stuff in there, and yes, uh, you probably noticed parents' sex features prominently in yet another passage. Uh, three weeks in a row, not bad. Paul goes in a little different direction next week, but if you're visiting and you weren't expecting that, we do have an elementary class next door. If you want to take advantage of it, I'm going to pray and uh, if you'd like, that'd be a great opportunity for you to, for you to take care of that, but uh, kids are welcome in the room too. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this morning. Uh, Father, we thank you for working to rescue us. We were rebels running hard and fast from you, and you sent Jesus to be our rescuing king. And Jesus, we thank you for submitting, agreeing with, embracing, submitting to the plan of the Father, and making it your own, living perfectly in our place, um, dying perfectly in our place rescuing us so that we could be adopted into the family. We thank you that you rose again. You're not a, a dead rescuer. You are a, a living and forever reigning king. We thank you for giving us your spirit so that we are not a left alone in your physical absence, but your spirit uh, has taken up residence within us. And, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for bringing us to life. We thank you for sustaining our life. And we pray that again this morning you would work to open our ears, eyes, and hearts to the word of our Father so that our lives are shaped by His word, His voice, not our own and not the voice of the culture, and uh, make Jesus the hero of our time together. We pray this all in His name. Amen. So as you know, because we're six, seven weeks deep, our series theme is Gospel Formed, Becoming Who We Are, a united family in a fractured city. And today we're exploring 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which Brent just read for us in its entirety. And, and here's the big idea of this chapter, our focus for this morning. Becoming who we are happens as we daily reorient our lives around God's glory instead of our own, especially in our sexuality and relational status. We're going to see this idea throughout the chapter, and the chapter will break down into roughly four sections. I actually want to start with you at the tail end of chapter six, where we're going to just briefly see this idea of daily reorientation around God's glory. It's just absolutely essential. Uh, secondly, we'll, we'll explore God's glory instead of my own in my sexuality. Third, God's glory instead of my own in my marriage and in divorce. And fourth, God's glory instead of my own in singleness, dating, and engagement. So let's begin with daily reorientation around God's glory. And we see that at the tail end of chapter 6. And here's what I want to say. Chapter 7 will make zero sense to us without the correct starting point. Because everything we're going to encounter in chapter 7 is so absolutely countercultural. I mean, just absolutely countercultural. It will make zero sense if we don't have the right starting point. And that starting point is in chapter 6, the last two verses. And remember, we're studying a letter, not a scholarly book. So sometimes the chapter divisions kind of work against us because we shouldn't see a break between 6 and 7. What Paul, the way Paul finishes up in chapter 6 sets the stage for chapter 7. And here's what he says. Family. You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. That's our starting point. So different from our rebel starting point and our cultural starting point, which says, I am my own. I am my own. And I gratify my body or my desires for my own glory. I live for me. We learn in Scripture that that approach to life, that view is absolutely destructive. It will kill you. And you'll harm many people along the way. So as a gift, the Father reorients our hearts around Him and that gives us life. But because of our remaining rebel tendencies, because of our remaining rebel tendencies, that reorientation is both daily and ongoing. It takes work. So the Father gives us this new heart oriented around Him, but I've got all these remaining rebel tendencies that I'm working by the Spirit's help to put to death on a daily basis and I work to reorient my heart around my Father's glory. We don't work alone. The Father gives us His Spirit to bring us to life and to enable us to fight. And He gives us so many different gifts. We call them means of grace or, or gifts that He gives us to, to grow and change in these ways. 
He's given us baptism, a kind of our initial reorientation, our identity in the gospel. He gives us his word. He gives us his family. He gives us uh, the communion celebration that we participate in every week to rehearse the gospel. And a, a reoriented heart says this I am not my own. I belong to Jesus and I exist to glorify him in all of life. We should just say that out loud so that it's in our ears and it's true. Let's say, uh, I am not my own together. I am not my own. Chapter 7 walks us through this daily reorientation around God's glory in our sexuality and in our relational statuses in a very real way. So Paul's going to walk us through beginning uh, number two with God's glory instead of my own in my sexuality. And so really, uh, from verses 1 to 9, Paul unpacks this idea for us. And in verse 1, we read this. He says, you wrote, in other words, he's referencing a letter that they sent to Paul. They're looking for clarity on their understanding of a gospel-shaped sexual expression. And they wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now in the original, we don't really see it in, the, in, in our English, but the phrase that they used was a very clear euphemism for like hot sex, motivated by passion and pleasure. Sex for pleasure. So that's what they said. Their, their letter was seeking clarification in part because there were differing views of sex in the church. And the problem is that none of their views were shaped by the gospel. They were shaped by the culture or shaped by their rebel tendencies. Here are a couple of examples. Like we learned last week, some in the church were professed followers of Jesus and actually regularly visiting prostitutes, like we do online. They just went to physical addresses instead of IP addresses, right? So they're going to prostitutes, and so for them, their view would be like, well, sex is no big deal. Like, it's just no big deal. I can do what I want with whom I want, no big deal. Another view would be that some argued that sex and marriage was simply to make babies. That's it. Just this mechanical process. We make the babies. Sex for fun happened outside of marriage. This was a very commonly held view. And so we could say of that, um, sex is all about me because that's really the expression of what it was. We make our babies together, but then we both go and do whatever we want with whom we want. We use them for our gratification. So sex is no big deal. Sex is all about me. And here's another one. Some argued for abstaining from sex, even within marriage, because they had a skewed view of the gospel. And they're like, man, sex is just dirty. Like that was there were these uncontrolled passions and urges before we were Christians. Clearly, this has this kind of passion has no place in a godly life. Sex is dirty. And then finally, uh, another view, some argued for upgrading marriage partners for a better sex life, believing that better sex is out there. Well, clearly, nobody in our culture believes, believes that one, right? Yeah, commonly held still today, commonly held view. So Paul, too, in ver or Paul in verse 2 says, uh, like he want, it's kind of a, a tentative agreement. He's like, yeah, it, you're right. It is good not to follow your passions and pursue pleasure sexually with like anyone and, and everyone. True, like I give you that. But hold on a second. We're not talking about sex within marriage. Like God has a beautiful design for our sexual expression and satisfaction. And that design is centered in the marriage relationship. That's where it's good and beautiful. And so Paul, Paul's got to unpack this with them. He's saying, look, we're not saying sex is dirty. We're not trying to lead people to remain single so they're not tempted with these sexual thoughts all the time. And we don't want to lead people who are otherwise uh, married to divorce so they're not in this relationship that is uh, leading them to practice this dirty thing. What he's going to show us is that God has a good plan for sexual enjoyment. And the problem for them is they were not embracing God's plan. They were embracing plans rooted in their own rebel tendencies or plans that were rooted in a rebel culture. And so as a result, within the church, there were two extremes. We saw this last week. There was a whole bunch of sexual immorality going on. It was, it was, it was bad and prevalent. But then there was also a school of thought that preached, like teachers and preachers would get up and they'd teach like this unhelpful and unhealthy sexual abstinence altogether. We just stay away from sexual enjoyment. And so here's what we see. When, when our hearts are oriented our, around our own glory in sex, we will view sex as either no big deal 
or as this dirty thing that we're ashamed of. But when our hearts are oriented on God's glory, we will learn to view sex as a good and right and beautiful gift given to us for our Father's glory and for the good of our spouse. So sex reoriented around God's glory instead of my own glory happens first, the first idea in verse 2, with my spouse. Paul says each man should have his own wife and each wife should have her own husband. And when Paul uses those words, to have, he's talking about more than just marriage. To have, this is, this is a sexually charged term. And so he's saying that a husband and a wife within their marriage relationship should absolutely have their fill of passionate and pleasure-filled sex. Their appetite should be completely and thoroughly satisfied. They should enjoy this beautiful gift together. So it's with my spouse, but it's also, check this out, this is really important in verses 3 and 4, not just with my spouse, but a heart reoriented around God's glory and sex says this is also for my spouse. Look at this. The husband should give to his wife, what? Her rights. And the wife should give to her husband his rights. So when Paul uses that term, his rights, her rights, it implies a debt or an obligation to God first. Guys, listen up. This is a debt you owe your father that you would give this thing to your wife. And ladies, this is a debt or an obligation you owe your dad that you would give this beautiful thing to your husband. Then the debt or the obligation secondarily after to God, it is actually to your spouse. That's what Paul's saying. You owe a debt to your spouse. You're obligated to your spouse. Top three things I never heard my youth leader say was, you want to obey Jesus, you're going to have sex. Always the exact opposite of that. Yeah, like sex bad, if there ever was a sex talk, right? How much more life-giving would this message have been if we could hold sex up and all the beauty that it deserves to be held up in, all the God-glorifying, life-giving God? Guys, look, the Christian view of sex, a gospel-shaped view of sex, is the most appealing and exciting and life-giving and life-transforming view of sex ever known to man. Everything else falls short. So... Those of you who are married, or if you're serious about obeying Jesus, Paul says you will have more sex. It's an obligation to give this, guys. But listen, here's the key word. What Paul's saying is it's an obligation to give, not a right to demand. It doesn't say, babe, you've read 1 Corinthians 7, right? So you owe me this. Like you're ob- I know, I know, I know what it says. You owe me this. Guys, that's your rebel tendency speaking that dishonors God and it dishonors your wife. So a reoriented heart doesn't say you owe me. It says, babe, I owe you. And that alone is countercultural. Like that is a countercultural idea. But what's more, the dude is listed. First here, which is hugely countercultural because this, cult, this culture was steeped in a capital P patriarchy. I mean, like hardcore uh, patriarchal society. So the dude came first, his needs mattered more, his sexual rights mattered more. And so Paul leads with telling the dude in this culture, dude, she doesn't owe, you owe her this life giving gift. That's still just as countercultural for us as men because most of us have learned more about sex from porn than from our pops. And so we have this skewed and jaded view. And porn has just taught us that women exist for our gratification and they're to be used and discarded. And the gospel crushes that evil idea um, thoroughly. And so the father, our father says to us men as sons, he says, son, you make it your mission to satisfy your wife, her desires over yours. And ladies, the father says the same thing to you in gentleness. He says, daughter, you make it your mission, your mission to satisfy your husband, his desires over yours. Paul keeps pressing, man. He's not going to relent. Verse four, neither the husband or the wife has authority over their own body. Westerners don't like that, right? We have been discipled to believe I have full authority over me. You can't tell me what to do with my body. My body, my choice. That's our cultural value. And Paul says, no, your spouse has authority over your body. 
Just let that sink in for a minute. Your spouse has authority over your body. So our rebel heart again would say, babe, you exist for my pleasure and so I'm going to take this thing from you. A reoriented heart in the Gospel says, babe, I exist for your pleasure and I'm going to give you this good thing. I am going to make it my mission to satisfy you and to fulfill your erotic desires in a way that is good and life-giving for you and I will not stop until you are satisfied. So how much freedom do you have sexually in marriage? You have full freedom. You have full sexual freedom within marriage to explore and to be imaginative and to enjoy each other's bodies and to just have fun with the good gift that your Father has given to you. Full freedom. The only restraint on that freedom, the only restraint is this. A Gospel-shaped heart that says, I serve for the good of my spouse. And while I receive her gift too, I'm glad to receive that gift. I'm glad my dad told her that she's obligated in this way. I'll receive that gift. But love is kind and it is not self-serving. And so, a heart reoriented around the Gospel and the Father's glory will never demand anything sexually which would be demeaning, degrading, dangerous, dehumanizing, uncomfortable, or otherwise unkind. Listen, in the eyes of your spouse. Not your opinion, their opinion. Full freedom sexually in marriage, restrained only by that Gospel-oriented heart which says, I don't exist to serve my own self. I exist to serve you. And so I will do what is good and right and loving for you. Then Paul gives a command here in verse 5. He says, listen, y'all, stop depriving each other of this kind of sex. Knock it off. Like, st- Stop depriving each other sexually. So that'd be a good question for us. We're going to stop. If you're looking for application, here's the first question. We'll ask it negatively first and then we'll flip it and make it positive. Does my spouse feel deprived? You can ask now if you want to just pull the face mask down and just whisper, ask, or may, no, maybe not. Maybe, maybe write your answer down and then ask them later. But here it is positively, right? If I ask my spouse, babe, are you satisfied with our sex life? What would they say? So maybe write that question down. I want you to answer that. Answer how you think they would answer the question. And then ask them over lunch or something later today. As you can. Does my spouse feel deprived? Is my spouse satisfied with our sex life? If we're serious about obeying Jesus, we will receive their answer without defensiveness and then press in to doing whatever we can to sexually satisfy our spouse. Then Paul's like, yo, um, stop depriving each other. But here's an exception. Uh, you can deprive each other if the following conditions are met. First, you both agree. So mutual agreement that we're going to take a break from this kind of passionate, um, fun sex with each other. You agree. And then secondly, he says it's going to be for a limited time. I don't know what that means. He doesn't define it. A couple hours, day, a couple days, a couple weeks. Limited time. Keyword limited. And then third, here's the condition. Ready? Because I know you've all taken a break from sex for this reason. What's it say? To pray. To pray. And we chuckle, right? We chuckle. To pray. That's it. And then Paul says, I want you to come together again after this mutually agreed upon break. And again, this in English we don't really get it, but this is a sexually charged term. Paul is basically invoking some kind of language that would say, I want you to have makeup sex after this break, but with no fight. Like just the really good makeup sex, no fight. You've got to come together again and serve each other in this kind of way. Verse 6, I love this. Paul's like, listen guys, I'm even a little reluctant to even say that. I'm not trying to give you an out. I say this as a concession, not a command. So he's not even commanding a break. He's like, I don't really want you to take a break. No breaks. I want you to make passionate love for the good of your spouse, which is making love for God's glory. And I want you to make more of it. I want you to go home at lunchtime. I want you to take a day of leave a week. I want whatever, fill in the blank. I want you to make passionate love with your spouse for their good. Make it your aim to serve them. And I want you to make more of it. Did you know that was in the Bible? Pretty cool, huh? That's a pretty life-giving view of sex that's absolutely flipped on its head in our culture. Guys, 
This is beautiful. In verse 7, look, it says, sounds like Paul contradicts himself. He doesn't. He's just expressing his personal desire while also acknowledging that God gives people different gifts. He says, I wish you were all single and content in your singleness like me, but I recognize that my singleness is a gift from God. I recognize that I'm content in my singleness because it's a gift from God, and I recognize that I'm okay not having sex because that too is a gift from God. I'm good. I don't need to express myself sexually the way that I just described, and I recognize that has nothing to do with me and everything to do with a gift that God has given me. But he says then, you desire sexual expression. Like, you want everything I just described, and you want to find fulfillment in your marriage. That is a gift too. You're not less than. Single's not better. Married's not better. Single's not less. Married's not less. Both are gifts from God. They are gifts too. And then verses 8 and 9, he gives kind of a quick word to widowers and widows. He says, it's good to remain single as I currently am. But then he says to them, if you cannot exercise self-control, which sounds like an insult, sounds negative, it's not. He's just saying, I'm recognizing and you're recognizing that while I have the gift of singleness as a widow or widower, you don't. If you don't, then you've got to remarry. Like if sexual desire is a consistent distraction for you, if, if it is a constant desire, it is far better for you to marry and express that passion than to burn with passion, just to be consumed with it and destroyed by it um, with no life-giving means of expressing that sexual passion. So guys, if we had to summarize every, Paul's sex talk here, right? if we were summarizing, he would say, reoriented on God's glory and not my own, our sex will be passionate and pleasure-filled and frequent and for the good of our spouse out of a desire to obey Jesus. That's Paul's summary. My summary of Paul's uh, talk on sex. And then he transitions, thirdly, to God's glory instead of my own in marriage and divorce. So Paul pivots away from sexuality, kind of, to talk more broadly about marriage and divorce. We see this in verses 10 to 11. He says, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. And you're like, man, what does that mean? It simply means that Jesus spoke directly about this topic of marriage and divorce because he was asked pointed questions about marriage and divorce. And so he gave pointed answers. And so Paul's just saying, look, I'm just going to repeat basically what Jesus taught and I'll restate it a little bit. But this is what he said. And so some of you are like, wait, what about the great stuff on sex? Like, tell me Jesus said that too. Like, that's all, it's all like, come on, I got to go home and obey Jesus in that, right? Uh, yes, yes. While Jesus didn't speak as directly to our sex life in that way, it is still true that everything He spoke in regards to the Gospel, like Gospel principles, can be applied to our sexuality and sexual expression. And so that's what Paul did. As a pastor, he takes all these Gospel principles and applies them to our sex life. So it is still Scripture, still the words of Jesus, still authoritative over us. Okay, But here he's just saying, look, I'm, I'm just going to restate basically what Jesus said about marriage and divorce. Here we go. And so to summarize what Paul says here, just so we understand where he's going, Paul is going to say that Jesus would say no to what we know as no-fault divorce. Jesus would say no to a no-fault divorce. And Jesus would say no to divorce as an upgrade, right? Like we talked about earlier, that view of sex in the church, like I can do better so I have the freedom to divorce so I will be happier. Jesus to that would say absolutely not. And then Paul will say, if you do divorce for either of those reasons, kind of a no fault or upgrade, you need to remain single or be reconciled to your spouse. Guys, this was just as countercultural then as, as it is now. I get it. It's, that is very countercultural now, but it, it was then too. In Greco Roman culture, marriage certificates were written as though marriages were expected to end in divorce rather than death. It was just an expectation. You're going to be married for a little while, you will divorce before you die. They prenupped it up, just like our culture now prenups it up as well. Now, in the Gospels, let's, let's be fair, in the Gospels, we do see exceptions to this, this general principle. In fact, Jesus allowed for divorce in the case of what we would call covenant unfaithfulness. So if marriage is a covenant, a strong bond that's uh, for life, uh, Jesus would allow divorce in the case of covenant unfaithfulness. And many scholars with whom I agree see covenant unfaithfulness as a broad term to include things like adultery, uh, abandonment and abuse. 
But let's not get off track here because Paul's not trying to write a dissertation on God's plan for marriage. He's not trying to write a dissertation on all the possible exceptions for divorce. And he's not trying to write a dissertation on potential remarriage. So we can't answer all of those case-by-case questions this morning. He's simply writing a 400-word blog post, basically, laying down general principles in regards to God's design for marriage. And then... He'll apply those principles to one very specific situation which was of concern for the church in Corinth. All right, So here it is. What's the general principle of marriage that we need to take away? He actually closes the chapter with it to, to restate it. It's that important. And so let's look at it. Verses 39-40. to 40. Here's what he says. A wife is bound to her husband. Okay, Bound, guys. Like strong word. Bound. A wife is bound to her husband. We can flip it. A husband is bound to his wife as long as he lives. As long as she lives. So lifetime. But if her husband dies, if his wife dies, they are free to be married to whom they wish. And then Paul says, comma, only in the Lord. That's Paul's way of saying, dog, you got to date. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are swiping right. Uh, Is that the right direction? You are only dating those who are also professed followers of Jesus, and you're marrying a professed follower of Jesus. This, that's Paul's way of saying it, only in the Lord. You've got you to gotta marry a Christian. Yet, in my judgment, Paul says, she is happier if she remains as she is. Single. Single. And so we can, we can, we can walk away with this view. In God's eyes, in our Father's eyes, marriage is meant to be permanent, lifelong, permanent. If divorce occurs in our Father's eyes, reconciliation is always preferred okay so marriage is permanent if divorce happens reconciliation is preferred that's kind of the summary of what paul's saying about marriage and divorce here now paul addresses a specific question related to divorce and remarriage in the church you notice in verse 12 he kind of shifts his language back he's like i not the lord so again that's just his way of saying okay i just gave you jesus's own words on marriage and divorce And now there's a specific situation in your church that Jesus didn't actually address like verbatim. So I'm just going to take his principles and apply it for you. But again, still scripture, still authoritative over us. Here it is. If a dude becomes a Christian, like he's already married, neither spouse is a Christian, and a dude becomes a Christian, should he continue living with his non-Christian life? Or would it be more pleasing to God to separate from her and be married to a woman who also loves Jesus? That's the question here. Um, and then it's asked the other way. If a woman becomes a Christian, right, in a marriage in which neither of them were Christians before, can she or should she continue living with her non-Christian husband? And to those questions, Paul gives an absolute yes. You persevere with your spouse. He kind of qualifies it. He says, if your non-Christian spouse consents or agrees to remain married to you even though you're now a crazy christian whose life is being radically reoriented around this guy jesus that you never talked about before and now decisions are different recreations different choices are different budgeting's different the way we raise our children is different like the world has been turned upside down because you have decided to follow jesus But if your Christian spouse consents to put up with all that and they still want to remain married with you, do not divorce that person. You remain with them. In verse 14, Paul's going to give us two very good reasons why we should remain in that marriage. But of course, we can, we can step back from that and say, there are a lot of good reasons to remain married. Like We could spend all day building a list. Paul's just going to give us two, and here they are. He says, Remaining in your marriage with a non-Christian will make your spouse holy and will make your kids holy. Now, clearly we, we understand the gospel. That does not mean that because you are a Christian, by default your spouse will become a Christian. Nor does it mean by default that God looks at you as a Christian and is like, all right, all your kids are good too. That's not what he's saying. Remember, the word holy simply means to set something apart for special attention. And so what Paul's saying is, as a follower of Jesus in a marriage with an unbeliever, because of proximity to you, your spouse is set apart for a special gospel influence that may absolutely rock their world and rescue them in the same way that did you. And uh, your kids receive this good thing as well. And look, we know this. As God's kids, we receive good gifts from Him all the time, right? He's a faithful father. He's a good father. So He pours out mercy. He pours out grace. He pours out undeserved kindness on us every day of our lives. So what Paul's saying is, 
Guys, if, God, if your father's that kind and he's pouring that kind of goodness on you all the time, it is going to spill over into the lives of people who live in proximity to you whether or not they're also followers of Jesus. That's what he's saying. And so for that reason, is it a life-giving thing to remain in the marriage? And again, many good reasons to remain, but those are the two best that Paul would offer. But then in verse 15, Paul says, if your unbelieving spouse wants a divorce, let it be so. God has called you to peace. It's Paul's way of saying, look, don't go down fighting. It's going to hurt. It's going to be hard. It's going to change everything in life. But if your unbelieving spouse wants a divorce from you, Christian, don't take them to court. Don't fight. Don't hire an expensive attorney. Don't ruin their lives. Don't take everything from them. Don't ruin relationships with kids. Be at peace. Be at peace. Be at peace. You're free, he says. Now, reconciliation is still preferred even in that scenario. But Paul's saying you're free. There's a freedom there that's not found in other uh, marriages that have dissolved in that same way. And then in verse 16, Paul wraps this part of the conversation with some gospel realism or optimism. It's kind of hard to tell. He asks this question, how do you know if you will save your spouse? So if we real, read that as realism, we would say, man, I don't know. Remaining in this marriage, there is no guarantee that I'll save my spouse or my kids. So that's kind of gospel realism. Like, man, I could persevere my entire life with this person and love them and serve them and display the gospel. I've got no control over their hearts but I'm going to persevere anyway. Or it could be taken as gospel optimism. Like, man, I don't know. That's a great question. I think by staying with them, I, I really have the opportunity to save them or to save my kids. Now, obviously, not me personally saving them, but God through my perseverance. So there's some gospel optimism or realism. But you very well may persevere and trust Jesus. Okay, so we summarized Paul's sex talk. Let's summarize his talk on marriage and divorce. He says, remain married. I mean, in its shortest summary, remain married. Especially to an unbelieving spouse who desires to remain married to you. Remain in your marriage. Trust Jesus with your difficult marriage today and your uncertainty tomorrow. Don't be troubled at the difficulty in your marriage, especially when married to a non-Christian. Change in your marital status is not necessary for God to work redemptively. The difficulty in your marriage may very well be the very means by which God works redemption and restoration in the life of your spouse or your kids, not just in your life. And so Paul's word to us would be remain and trust Jesus. Remain and persevere and trust Jesus. And then Paul illustrates that summary for us in verses 17 to 24. Like, did anybody else find it odd? We're reading a chapter on sex, marriage, divorce, and singleness. And then right kind of in the middle, there's this brief talk on circumcision and slavery. You're like, what's going on? Let me just alleviate, like the, the passage is not about circumcision and it's not about slavery. Paul was just using two culturally relevant scenarios to illustrate the points that he just made about marriage. And here it is. We see it restated in verse 17, 20, and 24. Here's 17. Paul says, let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. We could summarize that sentence as remain. Verse 20 says, each one should what? Remain in the condition in which he was called. In 24, in whatever condition each was called, let him what? Remain with God. And so he illustrates it with circumcision. In that day when... Um, so Paul asks this question. He says, if at the time you became a Christian, were you circumcised? In other words, were you of Jewish heritage? Don't try to change that. You don't need to fit in with the non-Jews. You don't need to change to fit in with the culture. Don't seek change. He says, were you not circumcised at the, at the time you became a Christian? Don't try to change that to fit in with the people who have always gone to church and worshiped me. The circumcision doesn't matter. What matters is keeping the commandments of God. Now, in the Gospels, just to keep this very simple, 
uh, keeping the commandments of God could be summarized as believing in the better words and works of Jesus. The first command is belief in Jesus, right? Believing Jesus. So to keep the commandments of God would be to believe in the better words and works of Jesus and to submit to him, meaning we would, rem- we would be willing to remain as we are and trust Jesus. So the point of his circumcir- circumcision illustration really is this. Regardless of your relational status, whether you're married, divorced, single, it's really nothing. It's really nothing. It's secondary, if that's tertiary. It's, it's, it's nothing. What is something? Obeying Jesus. In other words, Paul would say, don't focus on your relational status. Focus on Jesus and remain where you are for the good of another and for His glory. And then he gives the example of of a bondservant or a slave. And let me just say off the top, culturally for them, slavery was very different than chattel chattel slavery of, uh, let me just say it this way, of our American expression of slavery as we have known it. In their city, a third of the occupants were slaves, a third of them were freed slaves, and a third of them were born free or freeborn. Every seven years, any slave in the city was eligible for release. But what's more, slavery in the city was largely voluntary. Like you could actually sell yourself into slavery and many would do it for financial gain, for career progression, for political protection, for lots of different reasons. Nonetheless, to be a slave or a bondservant still was to be at the bottom rung socially and to be um, in a very difficult place in life. Now let me pick that up in a minute, but let me just say this. Any attempt to take this passage and to use it as justification for slavery in the American experience, which was done regularly in the South and even in places of the North, guys, listen, is absolutely evil and contrary to our Father's good design. Absolutely evil. Okay. Now, that aside, what Paul is saying is, If you were a slave when you became a Christian, if you were in this hard place and you didn't even control your circumstances, you didn't even control your environment, you had zero control over your own self, don't be troubled by that. Don't be troubled by that. But if freedom can be gained, if freedom can be gained, take it. Take the opportunity, right? And here's his point with this example. If your relational status is difficult, don't be troubled by that. If God has saved you and you're in a relationship that is hard and and just, just hard, don't be troubled and don't be tempted to believe that you have to pursue change as your only hope. Though, if freedom is possible for you, maybe it is right for you to change up a relational status. Again, we can't get into all those details, but this illustration helps us understand that change is possible. However, Here's Paul's point. Change is not necessary for God to work redemptively. We don't belong to ourselves and we don't belong to others. We belong to Jesus. So reoriented around God's glory, we can freely say, I am not my own. I can remain and I can persevere trusting Jesus for His fame and for the good of others. Now Paul transitions into a talk on singleness, dating, and engagement. So again, our focus is on God's glory instead of my own in singleness, in dating, and in engagement. So Paul wraps up with some important words for the singles in our family. Notice in verse 25, he uses that word, the title betrothed. Did you see that? So we understand from the context that Paul is mostly addressing or primarily addressing those who are engaged but the principles that he's going to give them will apply to would have applied to any of the like what we would consider a single person in their family and still applies to the single people in our family and here's what paul says he says i have no command from the lord no command from the lord but i give my judgment as one who by the The Lord's mercy is trustworthy. So just like before, what he's saying is, Jesus didn't speak directly to this scenario, but I am going to take gospel principles and apply them to the life of a single person in your church in the way that Jesus would if he were here. So he's speaking on behalf of Jesus and with the authority of Jesus that none of us can do. And it is Scripture and it is still inspired and authoritative over us. And so here's what he says, right? Verse 35. Here's, if you're single, this is what Paul wants you to hear this morning. 
He says, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint on you, but to promote good order. And listen, this is key. This is what Paul wants you to hear. To secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul says, I want you to prioritize this over everything else. God deserves your undivided allegiance and affection. Also, hands down, this is the best thing that you can do for you right now. It is the best thing for your future and the best thing for a possible, potential future marriage. Secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Channel all of your energy in pursuing Jesus. Cultivate your affections for Him. Cultivate your allegiances for Him. Learn from Him. All of the energy that you have in your singleness and in your youth, all, all of the extra time that you may have, all of that, funnel it, channel it to securing your undivided devotion to the Lord. Guys, that is so counter to what our culture would say because our culture and our rebel hearts would say, you're single, you're young, give your undivided devotion to yourself. Serve yourself. Satisfy every longing you have. Do it now before you're committed to another person and, re- and lose all of that freedom. You do you. Secure your undivided attention for yourself and don't listen to anybody that says otherwise. Secure your undivided devotion for your career. Do you advance at any cost? And Paul, again, crushes that with the Gospel and says, no, the, the gift that God gives you in your singleness is the capacity to pursue Jesus in this way where you you can cultivate an undivided devotion for Jesus. Paul's going to talk about sexuality here too for uh, our singles. Notice in verses 36 to 38, again, he's talking to an engaged guy, but it's applicable to all who are in a single season. Notice what he says. He says, he says, bro, if your passions are strong, if your sex drive is strong and it has to be right if it has to be let him do as he wishes now our culture would put a period right there and our rebel hearts put a period right there didn't we if my passions are strong and it has to be let me do what i want and don't tell me otherwise right there's our rebel voice but in the gospel there's no period there there's a comma for a better way a better way. This is Paul's way of saying to those of you who are single, sex is fantastic and beautiful and a good gift in its time and in its place. Outside of that time and outside of that place, it will destroy you. But inside of its time and inside of its place, it will be one of the most life-giving things that you know. So view sex as beautiful and sacred and future and as this gift that I will receive, but not yet. Not yet. And then here's his comma, and he says, um, where's his comma? There it is. Let him do as he wishes, comma, let them be married. It is no sin. Wait, wait for that season of marriage and receive God's beautiful gift and share it with the one you marry. But then he says, whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity but having his desire under control, he will do well. If you get married, which is God's plan for sexual expression, Paul says you do well. It's good. Good on you. But then Paul says if you remain single, you do even better. But you're like, that doesn't make any sense. How can that be better if he's been building this thing up as beautiful and I do well by getting married and enjoying it? How do I, why is it better to remain single? Well, there's a, really key, there's a really key line in the chapter that helps us understand the perspective that Paul's coming from. And here it is in verse 26. See what he says? He says... Um, he says, in view of the present distress. So what's going on in Corinth is, like, there's, there's historical evidence for this. They were dealing with a food shortage. Like, they were dealing with a severe famine. There was actually, like, no joke, there was panic buying in the city. So before we had a toilet paper shortage, like, they had a toilet paper shortage. There was panic buying all through the city. There was social unrest, there were riots, and there was profound uncertainty about the future. So for them, it was basically 2020, and they were only a few days away from the election. I mean, Corinth was messed up. So given the circumstances, given all those realities, Paul just says to the, single, to the singles, he says, look, 
like if we're going to summarize advice, we could summarize his advice, advice this way. Guys, things are really tough right now. There's a lot of uncertainty. Getting married would be very, very difficult in this setting. So, verse 26, I think it's better for you to remain single as, as you are for now. Wait. But, verse 28, the bottom line is you are free to get married if you want to. Like, you're good, man. You're not sinning. You're not violating anything. Like, go for it. But from a father to a son, listen, I just want you to know if you get married, you will add to your troubles. You will add to your troubles. You think singleness is challenging, and we have all been single, and so we're not denigrating singleness. Singleness can be one of the most challenging seasons in life for many of us. It was a hard and difficult season. Can be, not necessarily, but can, can be. So Paul's saying, dog, you think singleness is challenging, and it is. You're going to be putting in overtime and need a counselor once you get married. Mary, guys, look, all kidding aside, when the world is all right and perfect, is marriage not very, very hard and difficult and taxing? It's hard, right? It's beautiful, but it's hard. Why are you like just staring at me? Am I alone? You don't want to admit it next to your spouse. It's just all roses with your spouse. Got it. Fine. For me, not because of my spouse, because of me, marriage is hard work in the best of times. So it's harder still in a legit pandemic. It's harder still when there's so much uncertainty. So he explains, he explains further in verses 32 to 35. He's just saying, guys, I want you to be free from additional, additional anxieties. See, in your singleness, you're free to give your undivided attention to God. But should you choose to get married now, your interests are going to be divided. Like you can still pursue Jesus and living for his glory, but now you're going to be living with another sinner 24-7 and it's going to be taxing. Your attention and your energy will be consumed in pleasing your spouse, is what he's saying. Again, you're free to get married. He's just saying as a dad or as an older brother, I want you to make sure that marriage is not an escape of your troubles in singleness. Marriage compounds the complexity and the struggle. Marriage is not an escape. Singleness is beautiful and it has its place and it's a good season. Marriage is not an escape. You're free to get married, but I just want to make sure that you know in this season your priority should be giving your undivided devotion to Jesus. Focus on Him. Don't focus on changing yourself. Don't focus on um, the perfect search for that potential spouse. Don't try to make yourself the best possible husband or best possible wife. You can't do it and it can't be done outside of marriage anyway. Paul's advice for a single Christian is go all in on pursuing Jesus. All in. Because if you don't in your singleness, you won't in your marriage. And if you find it hard in your singleness, you're going to find it harder still in your marriage. Almost impossible sometimes. Guys, this is so applicable to us. We may not be in as troubling times as they were in Corinth, but look, for those of you who are single, where are you right now? You're around the globe. You're not even in your country of origin. How much time do you spend at home? Not much. Not much. I think this really applies to us. I think there's real wisdom here. Don't believe that you have to rush into marriage. Don't believe that marriage is an escape from your present difficulties. It will compound your present difficulties. If you get married now in this setting and as an active duty person, you will spend way too much time away from home and way too little with your spouse. Did you know that in, in Israel, if you were going to get married, you were exempt from military service for a real long time after you first got married? He want, God wants you to be with your spouse. He want, Back to that sex talk. Frequent, passionate, all the time. No breaks. Not even for prayer. Not even for TAD or TDY. Guys, I think this is really relevant to our context. Be patient. Trust Jesus. Persevere. Remain. It's okay if you get married, Paul says, but it's also really wise to wait. It's wise to wait. Don't rush. Focus on Jesus. All right, we've got to summarize here. Paul does it for us in 29 to 31. He says, look, bottom line, this is what I mean. Here, here's, here's what I'm driving at. 
The appointed time has grown very short. That's just Paul's way of saying the gospel has to change the way that we view our right now and our future. That's Paul's way of saying it. So Paul is saying the gospel changes everything, including our perspective. Don't let the urgency of now rule your life. Don't let the urgency, the sense of I've got to have a better spouse, a different spouse. I've got to be single. I've got to have a different relational status. Don't let the urgency of now rule your life. Rather be ruled by the imminence of Jesus' return. How so? Look at what he says. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Now listen, don't take that to heart, guys. Hang on. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. You still have to show up for work tomorrow. For the present form of this world is passing away. Here, this is all that Paul's saying. I want you to keep your eye on Jesus' return so that you are not hyper-focused on right now. None of these temporary things are ultimate for you. Don't be defined by them. Don't be defined by them. Paul's not encouraging an abandonment of our responsibility. He's encouraging a recognition that none of those things in my life are ultimate. So, guys, our circumstances do not define us. Our relational status does not define us. My hope is not anchored in my circumstances changing. My hope is not anchored in my spouse being better or that I would have a better spouse. My hope is not that I can escape singleness and suddenly live in a fairy tale in marriage because let me just save you the trouble. It won't happen. It doesn't happen. Circumstances and relational status do not define me. My hope is not unchanging. My hope is in Jesus and his own commitment to work redemptively in my present circumstances, not in spite of them. Jesus does not need my circumstances to change, to work redemptively. Don't buy the lie. I can remain. We can persevere as we trust Jesus with our difficult todays and our uncertain tomorrows. Uh, John's going to come as one of our pastors and, and pray, lead us in a prayer of confession. And as he does, let me just say, guys, look, uh, we all have a lot to confess, right? As it relates to our sexuality, as it relates to marriage and divorce, and as it relates to the way that we have stewarded or are stewarding our singleness. Um, in our sexuality, can we just all admit that we were really discipled by the culture and not the gospel and really believe that my spouse exists for me to be happy, right? So we, we got a lot of stuff we can confess there. And can, let's just be real. We have some wounds that we can confess there because of the rebel tendencies of my spouse, our spouses. Some of us have been deeply wounded here. And so we have a lot to bring to Jesus to ask for healing too. Okay, so there, that's there. And then in... in Marriage and divorce, again, discipled by our culture and our rebel tendencies. How many of you have thought words that you would likely not utter to your spouse? I could do better. I should have done better. Life would be better. Different spouse, right? Those are all lies that the gospel crushes, and we need to be able to confess those things as well. And then in our singleness, again, I did not steward my singleness well. It was not defined by the gospel. Some of you are killing it, and I'm so proud of you. Keep pressing. Um, but it's hard to trust Jesus and remain in that season. So we all, we all have a lot to confess. So John, why don't you come lead us in a prayer of confession and we will be praying along with you, uh, confessing our own stuff.